Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee. She is a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings, where her work explores public policy as it relates to equitable technology access, broadband deployment, and more. We talk about a tour that she took across the U.S. to investigate the digital divide in 10 different cities, as well as her forthcoming book, Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. Nicole, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Nicole. And I, I have to point out, you are the Nicole with the E, and I am the one with that. So that is that <laughs> that is right. Neither of us are Nicole with an H, though. So don't don't add an H to our names. Okay, just a <laughs> pet peeve for me. Um, so thank you again. Um, I want to start off talking about this ten city tour that you took uh, to investigate the digital divide in the U.S. Um, tell me a bit about where you went and what your experience was like, and some stuff that you learned about why the digital divide persists in the communities that you visited? No, I love that question because I, you know, I have the book coming out and I'll hopefully talk about it a little bit more during this podcast, but it was really important to me as a person who does technology policy, who is also a sociologist to actually integrate the qualitative experiences of people across this country. We tend to, as people who work in the Washington, D.C. area, stay focused on, you know, the way we interpret policy from our really, uh, you know, often narrowed lens of Washington, D.C. And when you think about what is actually happening outside of this city, you begin to think about the farmers and the principals and the families who in some way or form have actually used broadband or have not had access to it. So I decided to do something different. I wish I had been, you know, 10 years younger because it was a big toll on both, you know, myself and my family. But the goal was to go out and just ask people what their Internet access was like, you know, on a daily basis and what they thought they were either gaining or missing. So it took me to the city of Hartford where uh, I had learned about a group of African-American girls who walked from school to the local McDonald's to do their homework. This, mind you, was all before the pandemic. It took me to Garrett County, Maryland, where I had learned about the fact that they were using what is called TV white space, which is not your everyday technology solution for high-speed broadband, but it was based on broadcast television spectrum that's been left vacant that allowed for a signal for this mechanic who I actually uh, found out about or this uh, farmer. Um, as well as a teacher of a five-room school. I mean, I grew up in New York. I never saw a five-room school, Nicole, in my life. But in this Amish community, Same. right? <laughs> you know, it seemed to work. And, you know, one other place that it took me that has really impressed upon my heart that I will never forget is it took me to the birthplace of Coretta Scott King, a, a small town called Marion, Alabama, two hours out of Birmingham. And in that location, compared to all of the places that I had been, I, as an individual, had never gone to the Deep South. So it gave me an opportunity to see what life was like there generally 
as well as it gave me this opportunity to meet this fantastic principal who I've had speak on multiple panels here in Washington, D.C., Dr. Kathy Trimble, who really embraced technology in her K-12 through school and wanted to ensure that her kids have an opportunity for success and achievement. So I can talk about more places, but I actually want people to buy the book. I am giving you a taste, an appetite of what you're going to find out in this book about these people. Because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, it's not just about the bits and the bites and the wires. It's about the people. A hundred percent. And that's that's a big reason I wanted to start um, doing this podcast. So let's talk about your book. It has this wonderful title, Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. Um, tell me a bit more about, about that thesis without giving away the book, because of course we want everyone to get the book. Oh my goodness. I don't know where to start, but I will start with the thesis because I think that will be most important for people to hear. I mean, when I thought about this book, Um, there were two things that came to mind. Uh, The first thing that came to mind is how do I tell the story of digital access in a way that is not going to be told by most policymakers or contemporary pundits when it comes to the digital divide? And I told this, you know, I, I decided to talk about this book at a period before the pandemic when digital access was on the radar, but it wasn't a priority. Former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, had placed closing the digital divide as one of his priorities. But he was looking at it as an infrastructure challenge and not necessarily a combination of what people consider the three pillars, uh, infrastructure, adoption, and utilization. So when I decided to write the book, I decided to base it upon this extraordinary technology that has transformed the way that we live, learn, and earn, and now even love. And the goal was to look at how this technology, which has always been touted as the lowest barrier to entry for vulnerable populations and often seen as a mechanism for solving some of the world's greatest problems, had a pernicious side to it. And that pernicious side, and again, this is prior to the pandemic when I began thinking about my book, was the fact that it was not ubiquitously available, that there were communities that lived on the other side of digital opportunity that in many respects were not benefiting from many of the things that technology had afforded. And what I talk about in my book, you know, from this harnessing of the Watson around human intelligence to the growth of platforms that allow us to engage in commerce right from the comforts of our own home. Those digital conveniences are not experienced by many people. And the reason it is the new underclass is because it's not the typical usual suspects. It's not just the folks who are disproportionately minority, not just the folks who are disproportionately older or less abled or from rural communities, but it's also farmers. It's parents. It are, it's, it's people who in some way or form have never found themselves where they have had opportunities foreclosed on them simply due to their lack of access to advanced communication systems. And so what's interesting, Nicole, and I'll just share this. So I'm finishing the last chapter of the book, you know, pretty much in terms of the qualitative tour. And that's where I found myself in Murrin, Alabama and in West Phoenix, Arizona. There in West Phoenix, another interesting point place, uh, Maricopa County, 90% of the kids in this school Almost 100% have cell phones of a Latina school and they don't carry it because they want to learn. They carry it for protection because they were in fear of of deportation because they are primarily the uh, kids of undocumented immigrants. With that being the case, I write this paper, put it out 
two weeks later, the pandemic hits. And guess what? <laughs> I'm talking everywhere. I'm so exhausted from 2020, but it was an opportunity for the world to see just how invisible this problem is. So the book took me, you know, an extra six months. It's actually getting ready to finish the peer review and go, go to that process. But it took me an extra six months because the pandemic actually reaffirmed my thesis that we now have people who we never considered to be digitally invisible, farmers, teachers, you know, teachers who sit in parking lots to teach lessons because they don't have home broadband access, kids who live on the other side of the railroad track, usually black and brown, who could not get online for school, older Americans without broadband access that cannot take advantage of telehealth. We're now seeing just how invisible they were. And that's why, you know, the thesis of the book is what do we need to do as a nation to surface the invisibility of these populations and do something about it? That is uh, all so important. I'm so glad that you wrote this book and I'm so excited to to read it myself. Um, and I think it couldn't be coming out at a, a better time. We have been talking about the digital divide for so long um, and not really solving it, sort of throwing different sums of money, at different problems and Anyway, but uh, but I think that the pandemic has really highlighted it in a way that people hadn't, uh, you know, been able to see before. Um, and whenever any person is marginalized in this country, it hurts the entire uh, country. So I think calling calling out that this is creating a new underclass, I think, is a really smart way of of framing it. And and Nicole would say on that too, just real quickly. I mean, I think one of the things that also surfaced before the pandemic for me is there are like a whole range of people who cannot benefit from the new technologies that we have. If you don't have a credit card, you're not getting an Uber. You're not able to, you know, get an Airbnb. You cannot benefit without the financial collateral. And now we're seeing as a result of this pandemic, just how closely tied the range of systemic inequalities are to those who are not online. I mean, listen, 18 million people, according to the FCC, and that's a low bar, were not connected to the internet prior to the pandemic. Now in the wake of, you know, economic decline and mounting housing evictions and foreclosures, those housing instabilities alone are going to impact people's ability to stay connected. And these are problems we need to care about. So let's talk a little bit about the policy part of things. You know, like I was I was sort of alluding to that there have been various policies um, that have sought to address the digital divide for many years now. Um, so from your research and from what you what you saw up close, uh, what have we learned about telecommunications policy in the last decade or so? Um, and how do you hope to see broadband address in our new, under the new Biden administration? Well, I, I mean, I love that question. I, I want to answer the first question. What have we learned in the last decade is that policymaking cannot keep up with broadband. <laughs> that the um, actual network and the applications that it enables, they go faster than what policymakers can actually do. Um, and we very rarely have been in sync in ways that we can keep up to ensure consumer protection. And, you know, marketplace competition around these areas. So that's a problem that we have to solve, especially as we go into Internet 2.0 in terms of artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies. With that being said, I mean, I think the United States has always had a solution for what we call universal service. The universal service fund generally was designed to ensure that people 
all across the nation had access to, uh, to telecommunication services, the phone. I can remember, and I'm not going to date myself, and I'm glad people aren't seeing me, but listen, I remember when my phone number was NE62437 uh, because we had to pick up a phone and dial a number, and that was the way that we communicate outside of when I was living in this building. We just opened up the dumpster and yell up to our cousin who lived on the top floor. Now you look at the rate of, you know, people cutting these cords on telephone service, broadband actually entering in as the option, mobile penetration in terms of people in cell phones. And we're at a quagmire where we cannot keep pace in ensuring that everybody is adequately connected to this lifeline of communication. I mean, you cannot do much. Even if it, you know, whether it's a phone, whether it's the a tablet, whether it's your, you know, something else, we no longer have the telegraph in which telecommunication services were founded. And much like the debates of rural electrification, we're at this stage now where we need to make broadband more ubiquitous. We have seen the country try to deal with that. I mean, on the area of federal universal service, we see funding go to schools and libraries, as well as rural telehealth care providers uh, to ensure that areas where there is either not a benefit to build or an incentive to build or what we call high cost, that we provide some type of uh, discount or subsidy or support from the federal government. The challenge with that is we have complementary to our universal service, something called the Lifeline Program, which, by the way, was developed by Ronald Reagan, that provides the same type of support to low-income families who at that time just needed telephone service just to call the emergency room um, if they didn't have access or to be attuned to, and again, I'm not going to date myself, but some of those you know messages that we used to get on national security or some type of you know a threat to our lands used to come through your phone. Well, today that phone is replaced by mobile wireless and the Lifeline program for you know most of its tenure has ensured that people have access to things like track phone and you know the Walmart phone at a discounted rate. You fast forward to today and what I write about is that these are just not enough. Um, first and foremost, the government has not provided enough money for us to connect the entire uh, you know uh, part of the United States, you think about it coast to coast, the amount of money that would be needed to bring a broadband connection to not just your most dense urban areas, but your most uh, sparse rural areas where there are probably more cows and people, it's going to be expensive. And so we need to ensure that we have universal service based on that. Secondly, the universal service fund is based on a tax. It comes from a contribution from uh, internet service providers who in many cases pass that on to consumers. And I don't know about you, but there's been a big wave towards consolidation that has placed a lot of those companies out of the fray. So we've got even fewer providers to deal with. Absolutely. So I, I just say all that to say that we have to start with the modernization of this program. We're not necessarily providing the best of the best when it comes to universal service. And, you, and, and, and you know, just last thing on that, you can see this play out with schools. It took schools a very long time and with philanthropic partnerships and private sector partnerships to get hotspots and tablets to their students. They couldn't access that money immediately to ensure that they could close the divide that existed between 15 and 16 million K through 12 kids. So clearly something is not right. And modernizing and reforming universal service in this country means renewing the type of social contract that we started with when it came to communication services. Um, I just also put out something on, you know, with the Biden administration, thinking about 
how President Biden's circumstances mirror that of Franklin Delano Roosevelt with the uh, Great Depression. We need a tech new deal because technology has basically encased every function that we all are partaking in right now. But yet we always see it as a consumption product and not necessarily one that creates jobs and opportunities and startups. And so I've been pushing that out as well. You know, one, modernize this federal universal service program and let's figure out how we could put together the elements of a tech new deal that ensures that people can get to work around not just the dams of our country, but actually the poles that ensure that we can do things that we're doing today. Wow. Well, I could talk to you for another hour. <laughs> I know. I sound like a deal. preacher, don't I? I? I'm an evangelist for broadband. I know. It's awful. Like my daughter said to me the other day, she's like, all you talk about is closing the digital divide. I mean, is this what adults do? And I'm like, yeah. 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 All the adults are only talking about closing the digital divide. We should be so lucky. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to uh, let you go, but for the just one last question here, because because I, you must have seen a lot of uh, on the ground how local communities are working together to close the digital divide in their areas. So I'm just wondering um, if you can speak a little bit to the role of public-private partnerships or, or um, community-led examples to closing the digital divide that you've, you've maybe researched or seen up close. Yeah, you know, I actually include this in my book because I think that what we've seen with the corporate goodwill of companies like Comcast and T-Mobile essentially come in and say, hey, what can we do schools, for example, to accelerate broadband access for students? Can we, you know, Comcast initially started as a program targeted to kids on school, uh, free and reduced price lunch, and now it's free to any child that's in school. These are examples that I think we're seeing where we have to sort of see that this is an all hands on deck problem. This is not a problem of just the government. It's not a problem of just the private sector. It's not a problem of just civil society organizations or the philanthropy. It's actually everybody. I mean, the challenge with many of the private sector partnerships is the extent to which we're going to see this continuation of those programs. I mean, I just know recently in the last iteration of the CARES Act that we now have some support for these companies through emergency broadband relief. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that every company likes their internet, every person likes their internet service provider. That's not always the case. But I do say, and I say this in my book, what did we learn from all these programs about, you know, expediting access and those use cases that matter the most? Kids that need to get online to do their homework, elderly folks that need to get online to actually sign up for vaccinations, uh, businesses that need access to technology to become digitally competent in a world where analog um you know, it, transactions are dying. To me, looking at those examples are going to be very important. And at Brookings, in my role as a Center for uh, Technology Innovations Director and as my role as a researcher, it's imperative that I try to capture some of those best practices. So, you know, I find myself trying to document everything that's gone on in these last 11 months as a national pilot and a pilot that we should, you know, really impress upon the federal government. Here's what worked. Here's what we should incentivize to do more of. Here are those areas that are going to require some additional government support. So, for example, with Universal Service Fund, we should have been had this as a national treasury appropriation, like we do with food insecurity and housing insecurity. We should have not have people wait 
to figure out what deals can be brokered with the private sector to ensure access. We need the private sector to take some of their best practices and tell them what is, tell us what they are and figure out, you know, what's the best funding strategy to make sure that we can continue this. There's so many questions, Nicole, with an E that we need to do. And I could stay with you all day and all night, but guess what? People better buy my book because I lay it all out. This is like, you know, Michelle Obama had becoming, this is Nicole Turner Lee's digital activation right. strategy. And so <laughs> I have becoming right on my shelf where right up here where I'm looking, I'm going to put uh digitally invisible right next to I it. I mean, so really, you- let me tell you something. The reason I, you know, I'm a pretty private person. So the reason I started putting these stories in and why I wanted to do the tours, I had a chance to see her at the uh, Capitol Arena here in D.C. And, you know, I will probably not fill a stadium, you know, I'd like to, but but what she did was she opened up around her own personal life. And so yeah. people who are going to read this book are going to find a lot about, you know, Nicole Turner Lee that they didn't know about where, how I got into this and where I'm going. But I do think it's important as a researcher that policy that is evidence-based is long-term. And actually it can be bipartisan. And so I think we're at a pivot with this new administration to start thinking about things differently. Well, Nicole, without an E, it has been such a pleasure to, to get to speak with you. And I, I good luck with the book. And I really hope to get the chance to talk about the book and more with you in the future again. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you tracking me down. And thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be on your podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, for joining me. And thank you to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm